0: Welcome to the Dr. Wayne Dyer Radio Podcast. Discover the wisdom and remarkable insights of Dr. Dyer, world-renowned spiritual teacher and foremost authority on how the power of your mind creates your world. Live your passion and purpose today. This is I Can See Clearly Now with Dr. Wayne Dyer.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to today's show. I'm Diane Ray here in the Hay House Mothership Studios in Carlsbad, and I'm so happy to say Dr. Wayne Dyer is here in the studio with me, Mm. (laughs) live for the second week in a row.
0: You look so beautiful. It's exciting. (laughs) Thank you. I
1: know it's nice to see your your face uh, Mm. here in person, so I'm excited about the show today. The phone lines are just opening up here, so if you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Dyer. Now is definitely your chance, because he is a busy guy. He's heading out on an Australian tour, so I know all of our Australian listeners are happy about this. Brisbane, uh, August 15th and 16th, and Melbourne, the 22nd and 23rd, and then heading over to Auckland, New Zealand on August 27th. So you're a very busy guy. So we will have some replays and best of shows in the meantime to kind of tide us over. And then, of course, I can do it Orlando in September. So... Wow, just a and then on busy a, schedule. And then
0: off to Israel. Uh, yeah, it's is a, a world Land? tour. This is my uh, year of <laughs> traveling. Yeah. The Wayne
1: Dyer World Tour. Right. Well, yeah, I told you earlier we had some uh, people contact me via email in New Zealand. They're very excited to see you because it's been uh, quite a number of years since you've been yes, over there. So it
0: has. I was there uh, 20-some years ago with Marianne Williamson and uh, John Gray and myself and one of my daughters. Yeah, we had a wonderful time.
1: It's yeah, going to be amazing to visit them again. I love again the kiwis. Yeah, great. Yeah, I love the kiwis. The kiwis. Now, is that yeah. the bird? It's a kiwi bird, right? It is.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a bird that doesn't fly. I'm not sure about that, but I. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, they're very excited. Yeah. So I know. Um, yeah. Before... I fly
0: tonight, by the way. I mean, in a few hours, I'm going oh, wow. on a plane and heading. You know, we got a 14 hour flight tonight, so. <clears throat> That's
1: a long flight. Yeah. Brutal. Right? But you don't eat that airplane food, right?
0: Um, I do, but Sometimes. I just kind of pick at it. you know, I, a lot of the stuff I don't, you know I we're eat lucky the, I we eat get food, right? Anymore? I've changed my my diet around uh, completely in the last um, the last six months or so. I'm doing uh, you know, I'm really cleansing and working at something call radical well-being, uh, to get, trying to get myself in the absolute best shape uh, internally, uh, physically and emotionally and spiritually. Uh, so I'm on a program myself, and I I drink like 64 ounces a day of fresh squeezed uh, uh, juices, uh, vegetable juices, and so on. I do green, green smoothies. Uh, I cut out sugar completely from my diet.
1: Wow! Now, uh, do you keep a, no a, a vegan lifestyle or no, vegetarian or
0: no? it's nothing like that. It's just I just I keep I try to keep the toxins out, the poisons out. I don't eat red meat. Uh, occasionally, I'll eat some you know, some chicken. Mostly. Uh, mostly vegetables and and so on but it's the juicing and it's the being wheat free and gluten free and also being uh uh sugar free and doing my coffee enemas i yeah. gotta do my coffee enemas <laughs> oh, every no. day yes 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 star butts that's my new my new group <laughs> and um you know and just and exercising and uh, and doing a lot of uh, very deep meditation and uh, Really working very hard. It was, um, I'm staying out here in La Costa for uh, for a week, and I was with Deepak Chopra on uh, Friday night. We had uh, we had a little conversation together, and he introduced me to someone named uh, Rupert Spira, uh, who has written a book uh, called uh, about the transcendence of things, uh, the transparency of things rather, and I've been listening to some of his work. He's from England, um, and just uh, it's amazing because at age 75, I have more energy. And more excitement and more learning uh, taking place now. I've, I've read some of the really deep, uh, far eastern, middle eastern uh, spiritual texts. I've been reading a lot of poetry, um, and I think what I'm in, I'm in a state of uh, preparation for uh, for writing something about because uh, these seminars that I'm doing are called "I Am Light," and it's about uh, finding that light within ourselves and recognizing our, our own infinite nature. And uh, that's been an exciting time for me. And the other day, uh, or maybe a couple weeks ago, I was uh, watching Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show. I don't know if you ever watched Jimmy. He's hilarious. But he's more than hilarious. He's he's so immensely talented. Uh, he's one of the few people can actually—I don't think there's ever a show that I don't really smile a lot and laugh out loud at uh, some of the antics and, uh, and, and, and watching his ability to— uh, you know, to, uh, to do imp- impersonations. He does just about anybody and, and dancing and singing and acting, and you know, and so... Um, anyway, he came on and he had a, uh, a very bad accident at home. Um, he fell... And <clears throat> he was wearing, he was wearing a, a wedding ring on his left, uh, le- left hand, and that ring caught on, on as he fell, it caught on the edge of a table and almost tore his finger off. I mean, his finger was, uh, instead of pointing straight up, was pointing directly to the left. He looked at his finger, and it's like it had almost broken off. And so they rushed him to the hospital, and he um, had a... Uh, uh, he had to go to a very special uh, place because there's only a few specialists in the world who, who uh, do this kind of work, this microsurgery, where they have to take every single little stitch and it has to be done, you know, with this real great uh, uh, precision. Um, and he happened to get the guy who does this uh, and they put. It, he was in intensive care for five days. Um, and now he's got this bandage on his finger, and it's healing, and uh, eventually he's, his finger is going to be saved. It's going to take almost a year.
1: What a crazy accident. You know, crazy just such a accident. random thing Absolutely, like that. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So uh, – and he almost lost his finger. And he said uh, – the doctor who did it to, said that most people do lose their finger when they have this. So get those wedding rings off. Right. <laughs> and I'm looking down. I better right. take this off. So um, – and then he, um, he 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 came back a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, and he started explaining what had happened with the accident and that he was uh, <clears throat> in surgery and, in, and, and that he was you know, tied up in intensive care for five days. Um, and he showed a book that he read, one of the books that he read, um, and the book is called Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. Now, this is a book that I required all of my students to read when I was uh, teaching both in high school and when I taught uh, uh, in in college, and when I also taught in graduate school. Um, It was required reading. Everybody knew that if they took a course from Dr. Dyer, uh, they would have to read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, It was written by a man named Viktor Frankl, who in 1942, when I was two years old, um, was taken out of his home in Vienna. And, and and along with his wife, who was pregnant at the time, he was in his twenties. Uh, he was a psychiatrist, and um, and they took him, everything away from him. He was Jewish, and he was put in. He was sent to Auschwitz. He was in Auschwitz for three years, and then he went to Dachau uh, in, in Bavaria near Munich. These are places that I have been to. I've really looked at that because it just man's inhumanity to man has been always been one of my greatest uh, mysteries you know how can we possibly when we come from such a place of divine love turn our our thoughts and our awareness into so much hatred and and wanting to destroy each other and killing each other and judging each other and putting people into compartments and putting people into ovens, and, and you know, this, this took place in my life. I mean, you'd think it was the Middle Ages what was taking place, you know, when millions and millions of people were just being exterminated every day just because of their beliefs, because of their religion, uh, or anything else. So anyway, um, so he was placed into a, a concentration camp in, in Poland, and, uh, <clears throat> and of every 28 people who went into uh, Auschwitz, uh one would survive. So 27 your odds were 1 in 28 that you would come out of there alive. And he was one of the ones that did and he talks about why he did. Um, and then in 19 that was he was uh, he he was liberated in 1945 when I was 5 years of age. Again, it's still impossible for me to even conceive that this was all it's taking still in our place lifetime. when I was a little boy living in an orphanage in Michigan uh that um that people were being gassed to death and so on. That's a. Uh, it just. It's. I, I still can't even comprehend that kind of thing. I have difficulty even with people having road rage or, or yelling at other people. I mean, I. I like to be consider myself a being of love and have no judgment towards anyone. <clears throat> so in 1978, I had written several uh, several best selling books: "Your Erroneous Songs," "Pulling Your Own Strings," and because of that, I was invited to. Uh, to Vienna. For, by YPO the Young Presidents Organization and I was placed on a panel with uh, two other people Virginia Satir I've talked about this on my show before on this show before who's a very prominent uh, conjoint family therapist brilliant woman and then also Victor Frankl and so the three of us made a presentation and I was in such awe by this time, I had been teaching at the university for six years, seven years, and I had also been out of teaching and uh, writing books and lecturing and appearing on The Tonight Show all the time with Johnny Carson and, and so on. It was just a regular part of my life. And because of the popularity of my books, and they had been translated into so many languages, including German, which he spoke, uh, the title of your erroneous zones in German is called Der Wunderpunkt, which means your wondrous <laughs> points. Um, so when I was told that I was going to be on a panel with Viktor Frankl, I almost collapsed. I mean, I was just so uh, just just so th- thrilled and um, and and humble at the idea. Of this was this to me was one of the great men uh, of the twentieth century, and there I was, you know, considered an equal with him, which I didn't think of myself at all. And so um, I had read. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning, way back there in the 60s and 70s, and I hadn't read it since. That's like now 35, 40 and years. And how
1: old was he at at this time, Um He was
0: born in 1905, so 1978. He was 73. He died in 1997 at the age of 92. Um, and he was lecturing all over the world and um, just one of the sweetest, kindest, most beautiful men that I'd ever, ever encountered. We went to lunch after my presentation, and I was stammering through my presentation <laughs> because I just couldn't believe that. And Victor frankl they were
1: talking to him. Well, he had
0: actually read my book in German and, and was talking about it. I was just like, you know, I was just so, uh, just so honored. Uh, and and so, um after lunch we went uh, uh after the pr- presentation, we went to lunch together, and I remember him saying to me he said wayne he said when you, when we are confronted with a situation over which we have no control he said we are we are challenged to change ourselves and he said, "The problem is that most people cannot change their self because they're so." They're so caught up in their beliefs about uh, what is real and what isn't real and what is true and what isn't true. And this is my perceptions of reality. And, and he, he, would, he, to, he gave an example in the talk. He said that we were given a, 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 a bowl of dirty water and um, a floating dead fish head floating. And he said that was our protein for the day. And he said we were challenged to not only not judge that and not only not be angry about it, but to, um, to find beauty in it. To be able to find beauty, to be able to see beauty everywhere, even in the suffering that was taking place, and the, uh, the immense amount of suffering that took place, the people, that, the beatings that he took, the, the, the frostbitten feet that he, you know, had to work out, and, and uh, from early morning until night, he was a, he was a prisoner who was on, put on work details. He was a medical doctor, um, and his, he didn't know it at the time, but his entire family except for one sister who emigrated to Australia, all of them. His wife, she was, the first day that she was taken, she was gassed to death, his uh, mother and his father. And the only reason that he stayed in Vienna, because he knew what was coming, was because of his elderly parents. He just said that he had to stay there and be with them. Even though they had asked him to leave, he said he couldn't. Um, and, the, and the kinds of things that he did and so on. And so I, when Jimmy Fallon held up this book, which I'm holding in my hand right now, um, I uh, I thought you know what I've got to reread that. Uh, it really touched me in such a deep way, and so I I bought it and read it on the plane. And, and, and this le- this past week I've, I've studied it again. And there's one there's one sentence in there, one little part of the paragraph that I wanted to just share with you because so many people um, talk on the show um, talk about their suffering. Now the, the kind of suffering. You, it's hard to even imagine the kind of suffering. Imagine your home. You're in your home today, and you get there, and there's a bunch of Gestapo and Nazis there, and they just— right,
1: With guns and yeah, pulling and, you out and, of your house. And
0: they just take you away, and everything that you ever owned or that you ever—is just gone. is given—you know, taken away and, uh, you know, is given to somebody else. And you're put on a train with thousands of other people, and on this train, you would be uh, sent away to a concentration camp and— uh, you know at the sign at the door uh, or at the gate of Auschwitz, said uh, abandon hope all you who enter here you know it's like there's no hope for you you know you you are a prisoner you are the lowest form of humanity you will die here um and you will be put to work until you can't walk anymore and then you will die and he took notes on this throughout his entire time so it's just so when we talk about suffering you know it's uh, and and for him to do this for three years in bitter cold uh, until he was finally liberated, and he was a skeleton when he was liberated, and so were so many others. And um, this is what it says, uh, this, this one little sentence. Is, um, he said, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And he makes the case in this book, in Man's Search for Meaning, that any suffering that we go through, whatever it might be, emotional suffering, physical suffering, pain of illnesses, the pain of loss, you know, relationships that, uh, that break up and so on, that it's, it's, it's an opportunity. He said there's basically three ways to find meaning in life. One is through your work for whatever it is that you come here to do and you can, f- you know, you can feel meaning. Another is in love. Uh, in relationships and so on you can find meaning and being able to love as God loves us because we come from love and he said the third way is in suffering and I think back of the in, in my own lifetime of the, uh, <clears throat> the, the suffer, any suffering that I've done in my life um, which is in the overcoming of uh, of, of having to live in an, in an orphanage and having been abandoned as a child um, the uh, the struggle of overcoming addictions earlier in my life um struggle or the, the suffering uh, involved in a, in a breakup when my wife and I separated 16 years ago. Um, and out of every single one of them, as I began to examine my own life, out of every single one of them, I found v- very powerful meaning. It was um, it was in, uh, I think, 2001 or so that um, I was in just a deep state of, of sadness and almost depression. Um and and it was out of that that state of when my wife and I separated and all that and uh, and my wife and I are very close to, to to this day we're we're not living together but we're very close she's going on the cruise with us when we go to israel um and we speak almost every day and we love each other very much um but at that time um i was forced to look at myself and to see out of this suffering what it, you know what meaning can i find in this suffering and that's when I wrote the Power of Intention, which is uh, some people. That's think of, of my favorites. Yeah, some people <laughs> think of it as I went back and reread the Power of Intention when I was um, uh, writing. I can see clearly now when I looked through the different phases and what was going on. And I just couldn't believe how good it was. I, I couldn't believe that I could have written that. That I that I could have put that kind of energy and time, and that I found all of that information. I was just. Uh, but
1: you couldn't have had you not gone through. I couldn't what you that, went through. Yeah,
0: it was that because when you when you get into suffering, I mean, one of the things Viktor Frankl talks about is, is is compassion and how suffering brings you to a state of compassion. He says not for everyone. He said it's it, it everyone reacts a little bit to, different to the suffering. So that some people in the suffering became the, the the lowest form of of who they were would come out, and they they would uh, they would steal somebody else's bread, and there were other people who would find meaning in it and and share their bread with someone who was a little, who would give their shoes away to someone who was uh, you know who was had frostbitten feet and so on, so that it, you know for some people suffering meant one thing, and for some others it just meant giving up and not finding. It. And the idea of—and he quotes Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, and uh, Dostoevsky says, uh, he said, I always had to ask the question, am I worthy of my suffering? Am I worthy of it? And um, I think I asked myself that very same question in my life when I was going through some of the, some of the things that are so minor compared to what some people have had to put up with in their like like Dr. Frankel. And then— Uh, On page 153, I said, I've got to read this on my radio show. Whenever I do this, I want to share these things with my radio, because I wrote next to it in the margin.
1: (laughs) It says, wow.
0: It says, wow, yeah. (laughs)
1: On the page.
0: And this is uh, what I want to share with you, and then we'll open up the phones. Sigmund Freud once asserted, let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger... Which, and hunger is such a part of this book, you know being able to being without food because they would just get a gram or two of food, and they had to you know oftentimes just scrounge around for just a few crumbs and so on so let Let one attempt to expose a number of this most diverse people uniformly to hunger with the increase of the imperative urge of hunger. All individual differences will blur, and in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unsettled urge." So that's Freud's idea, that uh, all individual differences will melt away when we're confronted with a basic need of of hunger, and and we'll all just uh, be consumed with uh, our need for that. And Viktor Frankl says, thank heaven Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. His subjects lay on a couch, designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. There, the individual differences did not blur, but on the contrary, people became more different. People unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. And today, you need no longer hesitate to use the word saints. Think of Father Maximilian Colby, who was starved and finally murdered by an injection of carbolic acid at Auschwitz, and who in 1983 was canonized. That, that just because you're faced with like the, the, the most horrible conditions that a human being can be faced with, you can become worthy of your suffering. And some people did and, you know, even went into the gas chambers, you know, with a prayer on their lips, uh, finding meaning even in that kind of thing. So as you think about your calls to me and, <clears throat> and about your life and about the suffering that, um, that you experience, ask yourself the question that Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky asked himself. Am I worthy of my suffering? Is this one of the opportunities for me to find meaning in my life? And it doesn't have to be uh, something where I just give up on myself and uh, and become what what he called swine. You can become a saint as well in the midst of your suffering. And I like to think that the suffering that I've experienced in my own life, the separations, the anxieties, the stress, the you know the fears, have really um, helped me to become a better person, to find more meaning in my life. And some of the Best things I've done, some of the best talks I've ever given were when I was suffering inside and struggling and was able to just develop a kind of compassion for others. To find out more about Dr. Wayne Dyer or any other Hay House author, please visit HayHouse.com. Thank you for listening.